Christians can be confident because they are never separated from Christ. We love Jesus by knowing and obeying his word. He loves us by living in us and revealing himself to us. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open your Bibles to John 14, John chapter 14, Lord willing, we'll finish uh, John 14 today, next week starts uh, John 15. We're in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. As a matter of fact, the context for today's message, we're on Thursday night, probably late Thursday night. Jesus is going to be crucified Friday morning, so Jesus only has a few hours left with his disciples. And so we invest this, these precious hours preparing them for his departure. He's told them he's leaving and they cannot follow where he's going. They don't know where that is, but they are anxious. They're scared. They're borderline panicked. Everything they were hoping for, everything they believed, and everything they followed Jesus for is now falling apart. They thought he was going to be the Messiah, the conquering king, who would establish his rule and reign on earth. And now he's told them, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die and I'm going to go depart and be with my Heavenly Father. So they have no clue what they're going to do without Him being there. So Jesus is now comforting them, and He gives them divine promises about His presence, His person, His provision, and depending on those promises, based on those promises, He commands them to stop worrying. That is not a suggestion, that is a command. Now when the Lord gives you a command, here's the good news. You can obey it. Because he doesn't command you to do something that you cannot do. But it means you have to depend on him for the power to do it. So he says, stop worrying. So if you've got any worries in your life, if there's any frets, if there's any anxiety, if there's anything that's keeping you up at night, this lesson is for you. It certainly was for me. Let's pick up the narrative in John 14, verse 18. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and you in me and I in you. Here's the principle. Christians can be confident because they are never separated from Christ. Christians can be confident because they're never separated from Christ. Now, he uses the word orphans. You probably have the old KJV, King James, that says comfortless. I will not leave you comfortless. Back in the day, being an orphan was almost a death sentence. Orphans were very, very vulnerable in that era. Uh, There were no state agencies to provide assistance, and they were, unless they had relatives who would take them in and care for them, it was almost a death sentence. So, Orphans were unprotected, uh, and they were all alone. And Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you all alone. I'm not going to leave you unprotected as a result of my death. He says, I'm going to come to you. In verse 18, he says, I'm going to come to you. And look in verse 20, he says, in that day. Those are both future references 
to where he's going to have future contact with them. First of all, he's going to appear to them in less than 72 hours. Remember, he dies on what day? Friday, and he rises from the dead early Sunday morning, and he comes and shows himself to them on Sunday. So he has 72 hours, he's going to physically appear to them, and then he has 40 days between resurrection and ascension, and he appears to them physically multiple times at that point in time. So if you wondered whether Jesus is who he says he is, and you saw him crucified, and you saw him buried, and then less than 72 hours later, he comes and appears and talks with you and eats food and has conversations, you have empirical data that he has conquered death, yes? And that he is who he says he is. He's Almighty God. Second thing, Jesus is going to come to them a second way at Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came upon them during Acts 2. So God the Holy Spirit, remember Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, another helper, and he's going to minister to you and teach you and guide you and direct you and encourage you and give you strength and insight in the same way I did. So the Holy Spirit will be for you spiritually what I was physically. Everything that I, Jesus, did for you in the three years I'm here, the Holy Spirit's going to do for you for the rest of all eternity. So remember, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come, and they were given enormous insight, power, wisdom, and the ability to speak uh, the gospel with great power and authority. Thirdly, if you remember back in John 14, verse 3, we did this several weeks ago, in verse 3 he says, I'm going to come again and what? Receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. He's talking about the rapture of the church. He says, I'm coming back for you. And I'm going to take you from planet earth and bring you into heaven. And you and I will be with, the, you will be with me forever in heaven. So he says, look, I know you're anxious because I said I'm leaving. I'm going to the cross. I'm dying for the sins of the world. But I'll be back. Right? That's the original, I'll be back. I'll be back three different ways. I'm going to be back after the resurrection. I'm going to be back through the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to come back to planet Earth and rapture my people, my church, out of planet Earth and bring them home to heaven. So you don't have to be anxious because you'll never be separated from me. You will never be an orphan. I'm going to come back from the dead. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and I'm going to bring you to heaven moving forever. So the first way, reason you don't have to be anxious and you can be confident is you're never, ever separated from the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what your circumstances are. Now, the last time the world saw Jesus physically was when he was taken down from the cross. That's the last time the unbelieving world laid eyes on Jesus was when he was coming off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were preparing his body for burial. Now, Jesus died, but here's the good news. He didn't stay dead, right? After his resurrection, he appeared to multiple people, up to 500 at one time, but he only appeared to believers. There is no record that Jesus ever appeared to those who rejected him before his crucifixion. Now that's really, I mean, that's divine truth, but I've often thought, man, Jesus, why don't you just show up to the Sanhedrin in your glorified body and let him have it? You know, I mean, that's me talking. That's not the Lord talking. So the next time the unbelieving world is going to see Jesus physically, he's coming on the clouds of heaven with his army, 
and he's going to come back to earth with power and glory, and he's going to judge sin and sinners. Now, Jesus says, in that day, he said, number one, I'm going to come to you, and number two, he says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and the Father in me. I think he's talking about the day of Pentecost. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit comes, he illuminates the disciples' minds, and they fully understand that Jesus is God, Jesus, God the Father and God the Son have the exact same nature, the exact same essence. And they will understand that they are one with Christ as well. Christians dwell in Christ because we've been adopted in His family, and Christ is in us because we have the Holy Spirit. So the union you have with Jesus is almost beyond our understanding. Scripture uses marriage as a, a model of that, but it is really a remarkable uh, supernatural oneness we have as a result of being adopted into God's family. Now, Jesus is making an enormous number of promises. So the question is, who's he talking to when he says, I'll come back? You don't have to worry because you're never going to be separated. Who are those people? Well, they're the people who do what he says. Genuine Christians are known by their love, which produces obedience. Look with me in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. Here's the principle. We love Jesus by knowing and obeying his word. He loves us by living in us and revealing himself to us. We love Jesus by knowing and obeying his word. He loves us by living in us and revealing himself to us. Now, he says you have to have his commandments. If you have to have his commandments, it means you have to understand them. You have to comprehend what he's saying. You have to know what he wants. And then you make his commandments your own, by taking them into your heart and doing them. You cannot obey what you do not know. So we are, it's incumbent on us to understand what the Word of God says so we can conform our lives to it, right? It literally means to, be, to possess the commands of Jesus and to be possessed by them. You know, it's one thing to say, well, I know the Word of God. It's another thing to say, I'm controlled by the Word of God that I know. One is intellectual comprehension. You have to have that. But ultimately, knowing does you no good if you don't live your life in accordance with what you know. You know, you get stopped. Police officer writes up and said, do you know how fast you were going? And you say, well, you. <laughs> said, did you know you were going 55 miles an hour? Um, well, I didn't think it was that fast. Did you know the speed limit was 25? Knowing does you no good if you don't do what you know. That's what Jesus is saying at this point in time. And in order to know what Jesus wants us to do and commands us to do, you've got it written down right here, right? So it's incumbent that you immerse yourself in the Word of God so you know what it says. 
Now, to keep Jesus' commandments means to submit your will and conform your life to them. Augustine describes the person who keeps God's commandments in this way, quote, one who has them orally and keeps them morally. One who has them orally, understands them, and keeps them morally. It actually, they conform their life to what the commandments say. Now, understand, Jesus is not suggesting a legalistic obedience. I'm going to obey Jesus because I'm going to earn his favor. I mean, I'm going to be so self-righteous that he will love me. He's going to love no matter what. It's not about the perfection of your obedience. It's about the direction of your obedience. Does that make sense? He's not saying you have to perfectly obey. If that's the case, I'm, I'm out before we get to first base. I mean, I've disobeyed the Lord half a dozen times before breakfast this morning, right? We all do that. You know, in your brain is where 99% of sin takes place, and I can sin thought-wise in a nuclear second. That's why reining in your thoughts, getting a net on your thoughts, it's like fishing. You've got to get it on the hook and pull that thought back and bring it back where it belongs, right? So it's not about the perfection, it's about the direction. It's when you sin and fall, what do you do? You get back up with God's grace, and obedience always moves you closer to Jesus. Disobedience always moves you further away from Jesus, right? So commit to obey what you know, and you will move closer and closer to Him. And our model for that is Jesus. Jesus demonstrated His love for the Father and His love for us by just words or by words and deeds. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus is on his throne in heaven, and he says, Gabriel, go down and tell those people on earth that I love them. Send them a prophet. And that's all he did. You would say, well, I really don't understand what that looks like. But when Jesus said, I'm going to show you, I'm going to come to earth, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die in your place, I'm going to reconcile your relationship with God, I'm going to demonstrate my obedience to the Father, I'm going to demonstrate my love by what I do, right? Jesus' love had legs, not just lips. His love had actions, not just platitudes. He just sit up in heaven and talk about love. He actually came down and demonstrated for us. And then, of course, when we're moved by that, we want to obey him out of gratitude and joy. And our standard for obedience is Jesus himself. In John 15, 10, Lord willing, we'll get to this next week, but just to give you a preview... He says, if you keep my commandments, what will be the result? You will abide or remain in my love. And you go, okay, what's the model? Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is our model for loving obedience, just like we are to love like he did through obedience. By the way, God's not going to love you more or less based on your obedience. He's not going to love you any less because you're disobedience, but your experience of his love will change depending on your obedience. You have children? I know some of you might admit to that on their good days. You have grandchildren, right? And, and the truth of it is, we love them unconditionally. Yes, I didn't say sometimes you want to slap them silly, but you love them unconditionally regardless of their behavior. However, however, their experience of your love is influenced by their behavior. Correct? 
Disobedience always reduces intimacy. If your grandchildren says, I love you, Papa, and then they go and do exactly what you told them not to do, you know something? They don't love me. I don't care what falls out of their mouth. I care what they do, right? Obedience always increases intimacy, not just between humans, but between God and his people. Ephesians 3.18 gives us an unbelievable promise. It says that you, talking to believers, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. That's four dimensions right there. Depth relates to time. And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. My brain kind of goes in a hyperdrive trying to comprehend this. So the love of Jesus is so infinite that it surpasses our ability to comprehend. Compared to Jesus' infinite love, the Pacific Ocean's a waiting pool for toddlers, you know, little kids. Most Christians, I don't know I will say most, I'll say many Christians have not gotten their pinkies wet in the ocean of God's love because they refuse to surrender to him. If you want to be more intimate with Jesus, obey him. Just like Jesus obeyed his Father in heaven. Jesus said, if you obey me, my Father will love you. And I will disclose myself to you. Disclose means to reveal. It means to make visible. It means to make manifest. Remember Moses, Exodus 33, 34. He's been with God on the mountain, and he's seen God's form, and he wants more. He says, Lord, show me your glory. In other words, I want to see you clearly. I want a clear image of you. I want to know you. I want to be intimate with you. I want a transparent relationship with you. And of course, God says, well, if you do that, you're going to die because no one can look at holy God and live. So with, with several caveats in the cleft of the rock and put my hand on you and see my back. Intimacy requires trust, right? Who do you share your heart with? People you trust. People who have demonstrated fidelity and faithfulness. So Jesus will reveal more of himself through his word to those who love him and demonstrate their love by obedience. Here's an absolutely fabulous statement. Proverbs 3 says, God is intimate with who? The upright. The upright. He's a close friend of upright people. He's a close friend of people who trust him, obey him, desire him. Because loving obedience results in intimate fellowship. Loving obedience to God results in intimate fellowship. I know many, many people who want a closer walk with the Lord, but they don't want to do what God tells them to do. Well, you're not about a closer walk with him. He's not going to reveal himself to you if you're disobeying him. He's not going to, right? Now, genuine Christians want to obey Jesus. They want to. We don't obey because we have to. We obey because we want to. Because loving and knowing and having a relationship with Jesus is the most precious thing in all of life. It's what we value more than anything else. An intimate, eternal love relationship with Jesus is the most valuable thing of all. Now, Satan will fog you on this. 
Satan will tell you, well, you got your fire insurance. You don't really need to spend a lot of time with Jesus. You got your fire insurance. Go out, chase your dreams, your earthly dreams. You know, whatever it happens to be, whether it's stuff or thrills or prestige or power, whatever your hobby is, whatever you're crazy about, you got your fire insurance, go chase that stuff. Someday, you might get a deathbed experience. You might not. You might die without one. And most of the stuff we chase in life, a matter of fact, everything we chase in life other than Jesus is going to go up in smoke. It's going to disappear. It's not going to last. Ernest Hemingway found that out. He was, you know, the man's man, flying airplanes and boxing and sword bullfighting and all this other stuff. And it worked until his body gave up on him. And then he committed suicide. Because his whole life was physical pleasure. And when you get older, physical pleasure isn't what it used to be, right? You need more spice now to taste the food, don't you? I know. I'm with you. I got to have a lot of chilies now or it's, it's all flat, you know? I put chili on mac and cheese. Just, I, you know, I need all the help I can get, right? So Jesus is making these statements, and one of his disciples named Judas has a question. Now, this Judas is not Iscariot. This is Judas, the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus. And some other commentators believe this Judas is Thaddeus. And what's interesting is this whole conversation with Jesus in chapter 14, you realize he's really good friends with his disciples because he gets interrupted three times. Thomas interrupts him, Philip interrupts him, and now Judas interrupts him. I mean, Jesus is talking and they interrupt him. I mean, if Jesus was talking, I don't know that I'd interrupt him. But they're friends with him. I mean, they're friends, so they have these conversations. And like the rest of the disciples, Judas thinks that, you know, Messiah is going to show himself to the whole world as king. He's going to show up and he's going to take over. He's going to trash Rome and he's going to rule the world. And Jesus has just told him, look, the world's not going to see me. But you're going to see me. And he's going, whoa, I thought you were going to come as the conquering king and rule and reign. And now you're saying the world's not going to see you and we're going to see you. You had a change of plans? And Jesus essentially says, look, my father and I will never reveal ourselves to the world system that's controlled by Satan because they're disobedient. And I don't reveal myself to disobedient people other than to say, repent, turn back. Those who accept the gospel demonstrate their love through ongoing obedience. I reveal myself to them. And then Jesus makes one of the most astonishing promises in all the scripture. He says, if you love me and you obey me, God the Father will love the person that obeys me and my Father and I will come into that person and permanently dwell with them. Abode, he uses the word abode. It means residence. It means rooms, right? It's like in my Father's house are many rooms. It's a place where you live. It's your home. Father and Son, God the Father, God the Son, will take up residence inside the Christian. This is the only place in the Bible that says God the Father will come and dwell in you. We already know that Jesus said, I will dwell in you. And we already know that he's promised the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit live in you right now. I know when you look in the mirror, you go, well, that's hard to believe, man. <laughs> I mean, I need some more of that power, you know. Barely got out of bed this morning. Warren Wiersbe says, 
Salvation means we're going to heaven. But submission means that heaven comes to you. If you have the Trinity living inside you, you have heaven now. Our challenge is most of us are not paying attention. We're, we're busy chasing the things of this world, right? We're busy, you know, what am I have for lunch? Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Here's the principle. Christians can have peace because the Holy Spirit gave us God's word and guides us in understanding and applying it to our lives. Let me say that again. Christians can have peace because the Holy Spirit gave us God's word. And number two, guides us in understanding and applying it to our lives. Jesus has been teaching while he's physically on earth. He teaches the disciples and he's going back to heaven and he says, my father's going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to open your mind so that you can understand the word. Now, what's interesting is Jesus has been calling this person a helper. It's the first time he says the Holy Spirit. And one of the most important things you understand about the Holy Spirit is what? He's holy. It's not a spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. Holy means to be separated, to be set apart. It means to be cut off from that which is evil and sinful. It means to be separated from that which is wicked. This is the third member of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's going to be sent by God the Father to you and I in the name of Jesus the Son. And one of the missions of the Holy Spirit is teacher. The Holy Spirit, God says, will teach the disciples whatever they need to know about me. He says he'll teach you all things. He's not going to teach you, you know, what medication to take on Wednesday morning. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, I'm going to teach you everything you need to know about Jesus, everything you need to know about his work. Can you imagine the disciples um, trying to remember everything that Jesus said in three years? I can't remember our conversations from two days ago. It's shortening up as I age, right? I can't remember what I said to myself this morning. Now, that's really sad. Because, you know, you're talking to yourself and you can't remember what it was. So the disciples can't remember everything that Jesus said three years ago. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to cause you to remember everything that I said. Now, remember, John's Gospel was written about 50 to 55 years after the events occurred. Without the Holy Spirit supernaturally enabling the apostles to remember and understand what he taught them, they wouldn't have a clue. So the Holy Spirit's going to cause you to remember everything Jesus said, and then he's going to give them the words, inspiration, to write it down. That's called the New Testament. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So that's promises to the 11 disciples, the apostles, I'm going to cause you to remember and then I'm going to inspire you to write, but it's also a promise to us. The promise is, I'm going to have the Holy Spirit teach you all things. All believers, I'm going to have him teach you all things and guide them into the truth of God's word. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we, that's Christians, that's us, have received not the spirit of the world, but the, who, the spirit who is from God, 
that we may know the things freely given to us by God. John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The reality is, without the Holy Spirit, this is Sanskrit. I mean, this is hieroglyphics. You have Christians that, you have people that don't know Jesus? You have any people that don't know Jesus? And they read this? They think you're nuts. It makes absolutely no sense to them. No sense at all. It takes the Holy Spirit to open our minds, open and illuminate our intellect, spiritually speaking, to understand what God wrote so we can follow what he says. The good news is because we possess the Holy Spirit, we can know what God says because he opens our mind to it and because the Holy Spirit teaches us. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Here's the principle. Peace with God is our reconciliation with God through Christ's work. We experience the peace of God as we choose to trust and obey him. Two kinds of peace. Peace with God is our reconciliation with God through Christ's work. We experience the peace of God as we choose to trust and obey him. Now, in any survey that you ask on planet Earth, peace is the number one sought-after experience. People would rather have peace than money, sex, power, whatever it happens to be. Peace is the number one desired experience. They'd rather have peace than anything. In fact, peace is an extraordinarily rare commodity. Will and Ariel Durant, together, husband and wife, wrote their multi-volume history called The Story of Civilization. And they write that in the last 3,420 years of recorded history, only 268 years have seen no war. So 92% of the time, we're fighting with each other in wars, and 8% of the time, there's peace. I know households that aren't anywhere near that good. And it's warfare 99% of the time, right? They even fight when they sleep, I'm sorry. So if you look at the history of humanity, thousands of peace treaties have been signed. Almost all of them have been broken. Many of them before the ink was dry. Sign a peace treaty, stick a guerrilla warfare back there, right? The world's peace is temporary. It's never permanent. Now the Bible mentions peace 397 times which means it's an important part of Scripture. The word, Hebrew word for peace is shalom, and it's often used as a greeting or a farewell, kind of like hello and goodbye. People will say shalom when you go to Israel. When you go to Hawaii, they say mahalo, right? It's hello, goodbye. That's human peace. Jesus creates divine peace, and he gives peace to his people, and one of his names is the Prince of Peace. Now, everyone wants peace, but few are willing to submit to the Prince of Peace, who is the source of peace, right? We've got innumerable agencies working on world peace, but the world cannot provide peace because the world doesn't have any solution for the source of our conflict, which is our sinful human nature. Our sin nature creates conflicts with God, it creates conflicts with each other, and it creates conflicts inside ourselves, and the world has no solution for sin. 
The world's peace is far different than God's peace. When the world says peace, it's hope. It means hope, and we mean it negatively. When we say peace, we mean no conflict, right? Absence of war, no fighting. God's peace means a positive blessing. The word shalom means wholeness. It means completeness. It means health. It means serenity and security and prosperity in the best sense of the word. The world's peace is based on resources. A lot of wars are fought over a lack of them. God's peace is based on relationships. For the Christian, peace is not a result of human effort. It's a result of the gift of God that is received by faith in Christ. Here's a good quote for you. J. Oswald Sanders wrote, once wrote, Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God. Let me say that again. Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God. So divine peace is not dependent on external circumstances. It's dependent on an indwelling person, which is God the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fills your heart, peace is one of the results because it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The world only has peace when there's no external trouble. There's always external trouble. We live in a broken, sinful world. The Christian has peace even in the middle of external troubles because God himself, the Holy Spirit, always lives in us and you can't lose him. God's peace is really a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, that is a command that we can obey. Let me go through the couple of categories of peace. The first one is peace with God. Peace with God is objective and is judicial. Before salvation, we were at war with God. We were at war. We were in conflict. Because God hates sin, and before Jesus, we love sin. God hates sin. We love sin. God and we ain't going to get along. Jesus made peace with God possible because he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. When we place our faith in Christ for our payment of sins, God the Father bangs the gavel and says, not guilty, judicial. Not guilty. That's justification. Jesus Christ paid your sin debt. You are not guilty. The war between God and us is over. That's peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a one-time event, and it lasts for all eternity because of the work of Jesus. Peace with God lasts forever Peace of God, you can gain or lose a dozen times a day. The peace of God is our experience of rest, tranquility, and composure. By the way, you're never going to have the peace of God until you have peace with God first. If you're warring with God over your sin, you're not going to have peace, right? So the first thing is come to Christ and have him forgive your sins, and then you have peace of God. Paradoxically, you often have to fight for peace. You have to fight for peace. Jesus was troubled when he went to the cross. He was troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he fought the battle with fear, and how did he win it? He submitted himself to his Father. He said, Father, I'd rather not do this if there's any other way, but what did he end the prayer with? Not my will, but thine be done. Paul tells us how to experience the peace of God. Philippians 4.6. Be anxious for nothing. 
but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, here's the promise. You're supposed to do verse 6, here's what God will do. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. So it's a blanket command to stop being anxious. Peace is the opposite of anxiety. We're supposed to bring our problems to God in prayer. You know what's more important than bringing your problems to God in prayer? Bringing yourself to God in prayer. Bringing yourself. Prayer is much more than just asking Jesus to fix your external problem. It's really about submitting your will to God's will and asking him to honor himself however he chooses to answer your requests. See, Jesus may not solve your external problem. He might not. He might know that you need this external problem right now to accomplish his long-term purposes, Romans 8, 28, 29. But when you surrender yourself to him, you have peace even though the problem's still there. Because in his presence is peace. We don't often, we, when we don't experience God's peace, I'll tell you why. We argue with God about how to solve the problem. We tell God how to solve the problem. And then we want him to solve it uh, by noon at the latest. You know, Romans 8, 29 says, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? Verse 29, to conform you to the image of his son. How long will that take? The rest of your life. So when you pray, you never give God a deadline. That doesn't work really well. Because he can outweight you and he will certainly outlive you, right? So when you surrender yourself to the will of God, you say, Lord, here's the problem as I see it. By the way, most of the time what you think is the problem ain't the real problem. It's just a symptom. And God, if you would fix the symptom, I would be really happy. And the Lord says, well, that's like putting Band-Aid on cancer. Yes, it covers it up, but it doesn't fix it. That's when you surrender yourself and say, Lord, you know what's best. Whatever you choose to do, I'm going to submit to. It doesn't mean the problem is going to be fixed. It doesn't mean the problem is not bad. Problems are bad, but God is in control of them. So that's peace with God, peace of God. The third kind of peace is peace with others. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles who hated each other, but through his sacrifice for sin, Jesus made them both into one body, one family. Now, if you want peace with others, you're going to have to be humble, patient, forgive, courageous. You know, our sin nature doesn't like this. Our sin wants me to be right and them to be wrong. Peace is the gift of God, but it does require work if you want to experience it. Verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. Here's the principle. 
Christians can have peace because the cross exalted Jesus and defeated Satan. Christians can have peace because the cross exalted Jesus and defeated Satan. Now Jesus said, if you loved me, which is not really what you want to hear, if you loved me, you would rejoice that I'm going back to my Father. Right? I'm going back where I belong. I'm going back to the throne where I came from. I'm going back to sitting at the right hand of God. The disciples' love for Jesus is just a little self-centered. I mean, think about it. He's within hours of dying, and all they can think about is what? Themselves, right? Has anybody said in this chapter so far, Jesus, how are you feeling about dying for the sins of the world in a few hours? How, how, you, how are you dealing with that? How can we encourage you? They're not thinking about him at all. It's all about me, 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 me. He's going away. What are we going to do? Blah, 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 right? So they're looking at the cross from their point of view, not Jesus' point of view. From their point of view, it's a tragedy. Not that he's dying, but he's going away. Everything that they hoped for depended on him being there, and they've been dependent on him for three years, and now he's going away. From Jesus' point of view, dying for the sins of the world was the will of his Father. And obeying his Father brought him the greatest joy. Hebrews 12.2. This is a command to us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And you say, how could Jesus be filled with joy when he contemplated the cross? Because his joy was in doing his Father's will regardless of the personal price tag he paid. He saw through the cross to the crown. He was going back to heaven after the cross, going to be seated at the right hand of God the Father and receive the glory that he deserved and receive the pleasure of his Father by obeying him and finishing the work God gave him to do. Why did he come to earth in the first place? To pay for the sins of the world. John 17, he said, I glorified you on earth having finished the work that you gave me to do. And then he says something very interesting. He says, the Father is greater than I. Now, he's not talking about the Father's essential nature because Jesus is equal with the Son, with the Father. Jesus has been saying, before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Do not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me. So we're not talking that Jesus is saying the Father is greater than I in essence. What we're saying is the Father is greater than I as a result of the Incarnation. The Athenate, by the way, the Jehovah Witnesses love this passage. I knew that Jesus was a creation. He himself said the Father was greater. Here's what the Athanasian Creed says. Christ is equal to God as to his godhood and an inferior to God as to his manhood. Christ is equal to God as to his godhood and inferior to God as to his manhood. Remember, Philippians 2 tells us what? Jesus came from heaven laid aside, emptied himself of the independent use of his divine attributes, submitted himself to his Father, took on human flesh, made in the likeness of humanity, came to earth, submitted himself to his Father, not in nature, but in role. So in office, the Father was greater than the Son as long as Jesus was in the flesh. Jesus said, I always do what pleases him, right? 
So he submitted himself to human flesh, to servanthood, to dying for the guilty, even the innocent, to death on the cross, Philippians 2. And as a result of that, the Father highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name. So Jesus is equal with the Father in essence, but when he was on earth, he submitted himself to the Father in role and humility. Now Jesus is demonstrating his godhood when he tells them in verse 29, I have told you before it happens. Everything that's going to happen to me, my, my uh, arrest, my betrayal, my torture, my flogging, my crucifixion, my burial, my resurrection. I've told you all of this in advance. He's been telling them that for this tonight, John 14. And he's telling them that so that when it occurs, they will not doubt. Can you imagine being a disciple? You're following Jesus for three years, and he gets crucified and arrested and thrown in the ground, and he never told you any of it was going to happen. You might say, I don't know if Jesus was really in control of this thing. I mean, he didn't tell us this was going to happen. These people came and killed him, and he never said it was going to happen. Maybe he's not God after all. But since he predicted all of it with great precision before it occurred, when it occurred, they said, yeah, the Lord told us that was going to happen. Right? He's fully God. He's fully in control, including his own suffering and death. You know... God predicts, the Lord Jesus predicts a number of things for our own good. He predicted his death so the disciples would not doubt his deity. What has he told us would happen in the end times when you read the book of Revelation, when you read the book of Daniel, read Ezekiel? It talks about what? Troubles, trials, problems, fear, selfishness, foolishness, right? government, dictatorships, etc. And we run around and we are so upset because of what's going on in the world. Why does that surprise you? Why do you think sinful people won't behave sinfully? Look at us. We're Christians and we don't always get it right. Correct? We have the Holy Spirit. Why would we expect that people that don't know Jesus are somehow going to behave well? Jesus told us what was going to happen. This should not surprise us. We should respond like the disciples did. Yeah, Jesus told us this was going to happen. We know that. He's in control of it. He promised that it would occur. Nothing surprises him, and nothing is outside of his control. So trust him, no matter who's in office, right? <laughs> there is no politician that's going to bring heaven on earth. I don't care what party and you're going to go to their funeral or see it on television sooner or later. I don't care who they are. Verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He's talking about Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world system, and he was coming with Judas in a couple of hours to ensure that Jesus was killed. And Jesus said, Satan has nothing on me, which means he's got no hold on me. He's got no legal claim on me. He can't successfully charge me with any sin. Jesus couldn't, by the way, Satan couldn't hold Jesus in death either, right? Because he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death and Satan. Satan believed that Jesus' death was a victory for him. In fact, his death sealed Satan's doom. Colossians 2.15 says, 
When Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authority, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him, through Christ. And John, 1 John 3.8 gets it very clear. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Genesis 3 says what? God promises Satan, I'm going to crush your head. The cross crushed his head, right? Sin and death were overcome through the cross and Satan's power was broken. So the big picture Jesus is talking about here is all through this chapter, regardless of circumstance, you can have peace. It's commanded that you have peace because your peace does not depend on internal, external circumstances. It depends on your internal relationship to Jesus Christ. Remember the disciples on the storm of the Sea of Galilee? They have about a little 26-foot rowboat. There's 12 of them plus Jesus. There's 13. They're rowing across the lake and a storm comes up. And you get a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes you get two-foot waves. Well, two-foot waves when your gunwale is about eight inches above the water. You can, you can sink the ship pretty fast. None of them could swim, so they were terrified. Where is Jesus? He's in the boat. He's crashed. He's exhausted. He's sleeping. And you say, how could he sleep in the storm? Is the storm a problem for the Creator? Some of you are not quite convinced of that. You think your storm is a problem for him because it's a problem for you. And what do the disciples do? They wake him up and they say, Don't you care? We're drowning. He's snoring. They want to wake him up because they're concerned they're going to drown. Now, you and I are on the boat of life. And I don't know where your boat is, but I promise you, you're in a storm. You've just left a storm, or you're just going to get a storm. That is normal. Smooth water is not normal in this life, in case you wondered. Most of the time, it's hard. It's a storm. If you assume that most of your life is going to be a storm, you will not be surprised. What do we want? We want everything to be perfect or we're going to sue. That's what we do because we assume that it should always work. Really? We're in a broken, sinful planet. It's not going to work. So assume you're going to be in a storm. If you look at your life now, you're in a storm of various kinds, and you think you're going to capsize, and everything precious to you that's in the boat with you, your family, your friends, your work, your health, you think you're going to lose it all. Rule number one, stop staring at the storm. Stop staring at the storm. Yes, there's a storm out there. Who do you look at? The master of the storm, the Lord Jesus Christ who's in the boat. What's crucial is that you understand that God is in the boat with you. And he's in the control of the storm you're experiencing. See, we're looking for help outside the boat. The help is in the boat. He's with you. The Holy Spirit lives inside you. The solution to the storm is not out there. The solution is the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit living in you. Peace never comes outside the boat. Peace only comes from the Holy Spirit's with you inside the boat. And if you trust that and choose to trust that and obey what he says, you'll have peace. I didn't say the storm will go away. 
It probably won't. It probably won't. Your peace does not depend on absence of a storm. It depends on your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's summarize. Number one, Christians can be confident because they're never separated from Christ. You are never alone. Number two, we love Jesus by knowing and obeying his word. If you know it and you don't obey it, it does you no good. Actually, it does you harm. He loves us by living in us and, and revealing himself to us. If you want to know God better, if you want to be more intimate with God, then obey what you already know and you'll be more intimate with God. Number three, Christians can have peace because the Holy Spirit gave us God's word. We have it. And number two, he will guide us in understanding it and applying it to our lives. So we know what God said and we know what we need to do with it and he'll give us the power to do it. Number four, peace with God is our reconciliation with God through Christ's work. That's salvation. The peace of God depends on us choosing to trust and obey him in the middle of the storms. And lastly, Christians can have peace because the Christ exalted, the cross exalted Jesus back to heaven and defeated Satan. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.